You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome mixologist Tiffany Barrier, a.k.a. The Drinking Coach. In this episode, we'll talk to Tiffany about her path to becoming a cocktail maven, how she mixes storytelling with drink making, and we'll hear Tiffany's Julia moment. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Who needs a drink? These days, just about everybody. Julia said often, in response to questions about the secret to her longevity, red meat and gin. Yeah, Julia enjoyed a drink. She and her husband Paul would routinely end the workday with Paul's signature reverse martini. Pretty much more vermouth than gin. Indeed, drinks, both wine and cocktails, were very much Paul's domain. He was Julia's head sommelier, chief drink mixer, and cocktail recipe developer, crafting a good number of signature drinks of his own. So while Julia didn't teach or write a lot about cocktails, she certainly enjoyed them and saw them as an integral part of serving good meals and entertaining family and friends. Someone who shares Julia's appreciation for a good cocktail is mixologist Tiffany Barrier. We met Tiffany through our friend and her mentor, the 2021 Julia Child Award recipient, Tony Tipton Martin, author of the award-winning Jubilee Cookbook and editor-in-chief at Cook's Country. Tony's follow-up to Jubilee will focus on African-Americans' contributions to American cocktail culture and interests she shares with Tiffany. A native of Louisiana and Texas and a Tastemakers of the South award winner, Tiffany is a bartender, influencer, and educator. She spent seven years as the beverage director, working with chefs Dwayne Nutter and Todd Richards at the acclaimed One Flew South in the ATL's airport, named the best airport bar in the world. Now an independent bartender, Tiffany is known for crafting creative and innovative cocktail menus, hosting mixology classes, and connecting culinary and farm culture to spirits. She's a member of the Tales of the Cocktail Grants Committee, the James Beard Beverage Advisory Board, and the Atlanta chapter of Les Dames d'Escoffier. 
Her cocktail recipes have been published everywhere from the Southern Foodways Alliance Guide to Cocktails to Tony Tipton Martin's Jubilee, and in publications including Imbibe, Essence, Forbes, Southern Living, The Washington Post, and Eater. She's hosted drinks demos at events across the South, including the Atlanta, Charleston, and Savannah Food and Wine Festivals, as well as at the James Beard House in New York City. Tiffany received the Tales of the Cocktails Dame of the Year Award in 2020, and in 2021, she was featured on the cover of Imbibe Magazine, which each year celebrates the top 75 individuals, organizations, and businesses creating a more positive, sustainable, inclusive, and equitable drinks world. She's even shared birthday cocktails with Hoda and Jenna on the Today Show. Tiffany joins us today to tell us about her path to success in the drinks world and how she mixes important stories into delicious cocktail making. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm really interested in, uh, well, I always like to start conversations with kind of bringing people up to speed on where people have been and how they got to where they are. So I'd love to know how you ended up becoming a mixologist. <laughs> I love this question because after like hearing that bio, I'm like, man, this girl's been drinking a lot. For a long <laughs> time. Um, but I honestly got into this naturally. I grew up in a beautiful family that was just always opening the doors, serving food, of course, lots of drinks was mesmerized by the table that my mom would set up with like a punch bowl and bottles and mixers. And all honesty, I was like the gopher younger in life. I was the one that was going to grab a cold beer or mix a splash of this in there, like pre-bartender before I was even legal in the home, of course, and around adults. Uh, and it was just so fun and exciting. I had no idea um, what I was really doing, but I know that it was working because my parents and my family weren't sending drinks back. So it was just a fun thing to do, a chore of sorts. And then my early 20s, I got a serving job like most of us do in our 20s. And my boss just grabbed me off the floor as a server and was like, I need you behind the bar. You do much better. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, I did because I just, I love taking orders. Like, the fun thing about cocktails is people saying what they want. I'll have a blank and blank. Could you pour me at this? And I was like, yeah, no problem. I've been in love with making cocktails since before I could even remember. And when I met Chef Dwayne Nutter and Todd Richards in 2008, I really truly realized that this, this was an industry. This was a, a place of safety and, and comfort and for sure creativity and we were in love at that moment. I had a chance to step in the kitchen, the walk-in, the pantry, anything I can get my hands on, I started mixing and that took my craft and my storytelling to a completely different level because I was just bonkers in the shaker and make just about anything and they came out great. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you because I, I I think that was a great uh, description and you, you did. You took us back to childhood all the way to near the present. Um, and... What point, though, did you cross that Rubicon from just you could take drink orders and mix a drink? Clearly, you had an eye for proportions if you could do it without tasting as a kid. But when did you reach that point where you like started experimenting or realized you had this sort of palate for creating new drinks? 
It was tr it was definitely around 2008, 2009. I began to get creative, um, just kind of just splashing around different ingredients. Um, but I also found more books. And I also um, just really paid attention to the my chefs in the kitchen to balancing and the palate itself, sweet, salty, savory, unami, um, spicy. And I, I took all that I was gathering from the chef's table into the glass. I wanted cocktails to do the same thing that my chef was doing in plating. And I didn't think I saw many people at the time doing it. And I thought, well, why can't I do that? And I just got super curious. I just started dabbing and mixing. And there's a lot of trial and error. And again, a lot of drinking that <laughs> goes into, you know, um, finding out what your mistakes are, but then also doing some deep dives into um, different regions and, and palate profiles. And again, my chefs, I mean, chefs just do it so right. But the liquid world, I had to master and keep up with the chefs. And I was going to ask, does, does it kind of follow a similar thing that if like you knew that the chef had come up with a dish that let's say was like somewhat J Jamaican or Caribbean inspired, that if you went for alcohols that originated or were developed there or had a relationship there, that that worked or it was different more about just blending savory and sweet or... Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I absolutely, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman. I'm a mom's child. You give me a theme, I'm ready. Like <laughs> if you just give me a setup, I need the color, I need the theme, I need the vibe. And so, it was pretty fun uh, to see what chefs cooking, or the spice, have a bite, and either pair with that or pair the missing link. You know, if we're not gonna do, um, like you said, a Jamaican dish, if we're kind of scaling away from that. Um, more that spice, I may make a spicy rum cocktail just to, you know, chime in with that dish. So pairing became even more exciting because I was exposed to ingredients that my chef was working with, but the alcohol, those, I mean, booze hits the world, it's worldwide. And so I was able to grab different uh, cultures and create story content from each bottle to pair with my chefs. Well, I mean, clearly from the acclaim you guys received, it was working. But I love that comment that you made about actually sometimes you were looking for the note that the dish isn't hitting rather than – which is a little bit different, I think, than pairing with wine or beer. Yes. Um, cocktails can be intimidating at times. People tend to think cocktails are going to take them you know, through the loops. I think wine does it much better. But um, <laughs> cocktails have a story. They they definitely can be diluted and and expressed and elongated through other ingredients, sweet, sour, um, effervescence. So it, it's just been um, really fun to be um, adventurous in the glass with spirits. So I mentioned your moniker that you um, now, I think, self-identify as the drinking coach. But so tell us, what what does a drinking coach do and, and who needs one? <laughs> you know, the drinking coach came about before social media uh, was even a thing. I worked with an amazing woman uh, at One Flew South who would watch me work and she'd say, why every time you put a glass down, you always give them like cliff notes. And I, my response was always, because they really don't know what they're drinking. You know, we read something on a menu, 
it sometimes can be very intimidating. It sometimes just reads, you know, very foreign to them. And I thought, well, when they see something, sometimes they see price. Um, maybe they see a grape or or a year um, or a spirit. How about I place this down and give a bit of coaching notes? And it stuck. It just that became a part of my style. It became a part of how I deliver my service was Tiffany's going to hand something down to you and she's going to tell you probably three or four things about it. And I found that people were just much more comfortable coming to me and not intimidated by asking questions because I was already hitting the marks. Here's a glass of this made in this year, you know, just so formal with it. Kind of like placing a cheese plate down, you know, you get your cheese plate, you describe each, you know, profile and you kind of grow into it or even oysters. And I was doing that with cocktails and it just coached people um, to feel more comfortable and more excited and a little more boozy at the bar. So the drinking coach <laughs> became a thing and people started to really come to me just for some coaching and wanting to know a little more um, information on the profiles or um, what my, my, my cocktail was or why the ingredients or even where it came from. So it just became a real good conversation piece across the bar. Yeah, I was struck by that, that, um, and I think cheese is a good example too, but maybe even it's stronger with alcohol because marketing is such a part of it and with spirits and they're heavily branded. And I think a lot of times people assume the branding is, you know, was just made up in a conference room in, you know, suburban Connecticut, but actually with a lot of drinks, they have a rich and long history and even their branding has a history or because of prohibition that went over sort of, so I've been struck by how much more of a story both behind the brand, but also how the the spirit was invented. Um, I mean, have you found that too? There's just a lot to say about a lot of them that most people have never heard or even thought about before. Yeah, I mean, that's my, that makes me happy. Like right now I'm smiling so hard because all spirits, are, they all come from some indigenous background. I mean, vodka, rum, gin, tequila, agave spirits, bourbon, whiskeys, all of these things that we drink now, we drink for cocktails, but these, I call them the cocktail, I mean, the spirit ancestors or cocktail gods, they were creating these beautiful uh, flavors um, for survival in a sense, or for uh, rituals, ceremonies, um, healing. Um, these just weren't sipped in a glass and a chalice the way we enjoy. I mean, wine and beer had their moments for celebration, but when it got into spirits, um, you know, we're going back to Poland, we're going back to South America, we're going to Italy, uh, what they were doing decades, centuries ago, um, bringing out these great flavor profiles. And so that's the best part to me in educating anyone on what they're drinking. Of course, currently it looks this way and it tastes this way, but knowing where it came from and the stories that come behind it or the liquid ancestors that helped, oh, it's the joy of it all. That's the fun stuff. <laughs> well, and I think I think your passion for it and your excitement for it is infectious. So I'm sure that that made it made it made a difference too. So with that on the mind, let's get specific. And I, you know, we're hitting um, summertime, and I wanted to get your thoughts on like what we should be thinking about. You know, because I know that things that are seasonal, um, you know, is part of your repertoire and and what you do as a mixologist. So give us some recommendations, and you can either say what's trendy, or you can say also the trend you you think we shouldn't be following. <laughs> I will never tell anyone not to what not to do. Do what you want. If you're feeling it, go for it. Just get in there, 
just make sure you have water and food. Um, but what's always in season at this time for summer, everything's in season. I mean, every herb you can think of is thriving. Every fruit that's juicy, um, sweet and sour is thriving right now. Um, so blending those together um, always make great, meaning make a syrup, make a shrub, but I'm a, I love a spritz. I'm so into bringing bubbles. That's just kind of elongating a cocktail, um, or just some flavors and, and getting a big tall glass or the biggest wine glass you can think of, and tossing your favorite fruits and herbs inside, and you know mixing some club soda and, and champagne or sparkling. If you f- feel adventurous, add you know a little bit of spirit in there. And, and give it a spin, let the ice melt. I always say uh, fire to a chef is ice to a bartender or mixologist. Let those guys make love with that water and melt in and sit on the porch or sit in the bathtub or sit on the couch, <laughs> sit at your desk. I don't care, but the sun is out. We've got longer days in the summer and the sun brings that energy and so do bubbles. Well, I love that you said that, too, because I think people often get very fixated on a cocktail has to be more like a Long Island iced tea full of like multiple, multiple things. (laughs) And you're basically saying fresh fruit, fresh herbs, ice, club soda and or a bit of champagne or sparkling does a cocktail good. And then you can go from there if you want to make it stronger or add a different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, my latest obsession is elderflower flavored things, both alcohol, like either a simple syrup that's elderflower flavored or or uh, elderflower um, um, cordials. It never gets old. Elderflower brings so much joy. There's so many beautiful liqueurs. Um, I'm crushing this simmer on creme de cassis or mm. um, creme de mirror or chambord for those that are familiar, like that beautiful lavender color that comes in that gives you this this berry lusciousness not only does it make your drink look stunning in your hand male or female like whatever you're feeling this is a they them style but it just brings a flavor profile to your drink that you kind of forget that you love like it's it's almost a nostalgia of grape goodness that is in your adult beverage so that's what i'm crushing right now and with creme de cassis or creme de mire, what type of drink do you tend to do? Do you just do like a a, a, a cure royale kind of thing or do you do something more elaborate? Totally. Like a cure royale that's just for the one, two, threes. You know, you've been on a couple of meetings. Just knock it out with cure royale. Uh, and, or, <laughs> or like the famous bramble. The bramble is just such a beautiful classic cocktail with gin, um, your favorite citrus, lemon or lime, a little bit of simple, and then just toss in an ounce or I'm sorry, a half ounce of caramel and that can sit right there on top and float. And so you do have, it gives you this really good elegance, but gin and all of its nuance and botanicals truly enjoys some, um, because it usually goes savory. It truly loves something sweet. So the creme or it just makes the perfect bramble. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I'm a big fan of creme de cassis. Um, so, um, yeah, it's hard to, you could, <laughs> you could sip that on its own, but you can also lighten it. Yeah, I think for summer, it's nice to have, yeah, things that are fresher and a bit lighter rather than the kind of more super warming drinks that you might have at the height of winter. Yeah, I mean, I try, you know, things, we get a little stuck and smeared. I mean, sometimes people say, you know, whiskey only for winter. 
not in the summer. That's not the case. I'm a Southern girl. We drink whiskey year round, like hands down. But, you know, adding those fresh ingredients really brighten up um, any spirits. So if you're thinking savory, if you're really into darker spirits and you're maybe themed and they ha you still have that campfire energy in the summer, let's think, let's think campfire outside, outside barbecue, you know, and adding in those bright notes of any kind of citrus, definitely orange takes it to another round. Um, and using lime over lemon, like just that fresh, those fresh juices really um, brighten up a cocktail, even pomegranate really good um, too. Uh, make your darker spirits or maybe your fall savory spirits um, say hello to summer. Well, since you brought up whiskey, and if there are any whiskey fans who are skeptical of something like creme de cassis, wh what would you do for whiskey for to make it summery? Or how would you have whiskey in the summer other than maybe just on the rocks? <laughs> I mean, on the rocks forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, on the rocks. That, that's just add extra ice in there. You're fine. It's summer. Um, but I it's a drink. It. That's technically a drink and not a cocktail, right? So how do, make it into a cocktail for us. Turn it around. No, I totally, um, the old fashioned will never go away. It's still dear to our hearts. And so to any of my old fashioned drinkers that are out there going, I love whiskey. I love the old fashioned. What can I do in the summer? Keep drinking your old fashioned, but maybe change up your your simple or your sugar, your sweeteners, um, brighten it up with maple syrup, brighten it up with um, the creme de cassis, um, even elderflower. I've totally seen an elderflower old fashioned um, using a light rye, using the elderflower as the sweetener. And you're still using your bitters, but those bitters, like the, the taste and the bitters, and the coriander and the clove and cinnamon that blend in bitters really take a fun time when they see sweeteners like elderflower, creme de cassis, um, even some like peach nectar. I love jams, like any kind of chutney or jams in the fridge, peach, orange, any kind of marmalade. Toss a scoop of that with some squeeze with a squeeze of lemon and your favorite whiskey, shake it up, and you've got yourself like a lady marmalade. It's so delicious and bright. Ooh, that definitely sounds like a fun tip and just fun mm -hmm. for like playing around in the kitchen kind of thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more from the drinking coach, mixologist Tiffany Berry. Stay with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 
818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back. We're honing our cocktail-making skills with the drinking coach, Tiffany Berrier. So that was some really great and fun recommendations for summer drinking and, and tweaking your favorite drink to be more summery. I was curious, because I think you have such great tips and insights and, and innovative thoughts, to also turn around to thinking about drinking at home, not, not to over-encourage it, but, you know, <laughs> I think having, there's been a return to having a home bar and stocking it. And I was curious of your suggestions for things that you think you would have, but people often forget about thinking that they should have at home. I get this question all the time. I mean, I want to move in with everybody and just <laughs> tighten their bar up. I would love to. Um, there's a few things I think the home bar um, should have. I mean, just to make it fun. I mean, first and foremost, let's get some tools, some really fun bar tools, functional bar tools, that is. I mean, when we're in the garden, we have the correct tools. When we're in our kitchen or grilling, we have all of our needed tools. How about the cocktail game? Let's make sure we have a shaker that we really enjoy that opens when you want, doesn't embarrass <laughs> you. You know, having a long spoon that you can stir with, not something really tiny, or the spoon that you use to stir your coffee. I think that just really makes it fun. And when you have tools, us adults, when we get tools, we want to play. So grab a nice, really nice bar tool kit that's functional, not just one that looks great on that bar card, but something that you really love playing with. And that goes into the ice mold game as well. Fun, big ice cubes. Yes, yes, and yes. They're everywhere now. So the larger, the better for those dense, uh, beautiful cocktails you want to serve you and the neighbor or just goofing off and, and making yourself a nice drink in the house. But when it comes to bottles... We need to have some mixers. And so we definitely don't want to always hold on to what we drink. So if you're a white spirits drinker, be sure to have brown spirits for your friends and neighbors and vice versa. But let's not forget our vermouths. Vermouths are so important and valuable. They're not just for martinis. They really do bring some excitement and, yeah, a little touch of booze as well. Uh, to a cocktail that you make. And when you have your vermouths, be it dark or white, keep them in the fridge. They are wine. So keeping those nice and chilled really add to a drink that you want to goof off with or even express even longer. And even having a, a splash of vermouth on the rocks with a slice of fruit is just as fun as having anything else in the rocks with less alcohol. So vermouth in the house always. 
Well, yes, my mouth is watering listening to that, but that is a really so you you keep vermouth except when you're entertaining in the fridge. At all times, even when I'm entertaining. Vermouth stays in the refrigerator. Vermouth is fortified wine. Vermouth is made of grapes. Vermouth loves to be chilled. Um, when it sits out, it's getting oxidated. It's seen air. It's out here in rather regular temperature. It's hanging out with the dogs on the bar cart. It's not happy there. But while it's in the refrigerator, it can still hold on to, whether you bought a French or Italian, vermouth is still holding on to its flavor profile. And while it's chilled, um, it just really uh, helps uh, keep its flavor when it's added to any other spirit that you're having. And do you think, is that something you commonly see, though, people with vermouth that's been sitting out in the living room for <laughs> ages? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, not only do we see it in the house, we also see it at bars. This is not to say go out to your bars and ask your bartender to put it in the fridge, but it's definitely something to pay attention to because remember, it is wine and it needs to be in your wine chiller or fridge. So if you do see your bartender pull it out of a chiller, <laughs> then then you know they're 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 on it. You need to add an extra ten percent to that twenty percent <laughs> that you were already going to do. <laughs> it also it also seems like a hack to like just up your home bartending game, which is if you've chilled your vermouth, then it, and it's not two years old that's been sitting out there, your drinks might taste better. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, that's a great tip. Thank you very much. And I love that you started with the right tools because I definitely like I now over the pandemic have a perfect cocktail shaker with the right thing. And it really does make a huge difference for anyone who's ever like tried to do drinks with a cocktail shaker that you can't get the lid on and off. It just, yeah, it's <laughs> so well said. Um, but, you know, obvious, but not obvious because you've obviously seen people working with totally inferior equipment. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity because I know I've had, I've been to a fancy drinks place or a cutting edge one with the giant ice cube in it for the drink, which I didn't mind, but, but right. You don't want to put giant ice cubes in a cocktail shaker that won't really work or can you? No, I mean, not really. It's not necessary. I mean, there's, there's a thing in the cocktail world where we definitely want uh, shaking ice and serving ice. So whatever is coming out of the freezer, I mean, of course, I want you to have great, beautiful ice all the time. But our refrigerators, you know, whether we're getting it from the outdoor or inside of the ice maker, that's shaking ice. We want to be able to shake our ingredients. Um, that's our that's our stove. That's what I call. We put that ice and dilute there. But then when you're pouring out whatever you've shaken or stirred, you want that over a nice clean Ice. You want to put that over the nice big rock. Um, but something's funny about the big rock. You don't want to waste it because it's so pretty. So be sure that you're prepared to drink maybe one or share another with someone else with that big rock because that big rock is meant to be to melt slow and dilute slowly. But what you've shaken has done the work. So it's kind of eye candy, um, but also that dense ice keeps the drink cold and does not melt so quickly. Oh, so it is more than just kind of showing off your like very hipster. <laughs> it actually has a purpose, which would you have I and I see that now. I'm thinking back to this lovely drink I had with the which was like the first time I'd been served one of those giant ice cubes. And it, so interesting because it it melts slow it melts slower so it dilutes less. Mhm. Mm wow. Yeah, even if you're doing a spritz, <laughs> even if you're doing a spritz or a Collins, a Tom, you know, something on soda, it's even cool to do that with your vodka soda, or your G and T, like toss in a long glass. Of course, if you've got those, you know, pretty glasses, I like to drink my G and Ts in a goblet. 
um, or a wine glass, but you know, that also gives your gin a chance to um, dilute slowly um, because sometimes our tonics can be, you know, not so tonicky, um, depending on how fresh you're, you know, you're, you're using or if it's coming from a bottle or a can. Um, but that ice would definitely help you to uh, continue to have a good drink. And do you, why is it, as you were, I think, very aptly saying that, you know, to a bartender, ice is their fire. What is it? Uh, do you know the chemistry or what it is about why drinks taste better cold or super cold or, or shaken with ice and then um, strained? Absolutely. Oh, you're just hitting the best questions for me. We've got to cook it down. I mean, you're coming out of the bottle at 40 or 80 proof, sometimes 100 proof. This baby's hot. It's go it's been going through some things. And so uh, those that have a, a, a nice palate for smoke or heat or enjoy that that really tender touch when you touch it and it's hot. If you're co cooperating it with um, sugars and citrus, bitters, shrubs, we need to incorporate these guys. And the only way to do it is a little bit of water. Water is our friend when it comes to cocktails. And so that shake, that heart shake or that stir that we're doing is really just adding some water molecules to just let those ingredients get to know each other like a slow simmer. Um, a heart shake means I've put in, I've put some really fresh, fresh citrus inside or sticky syrup that needs to really just kind of blend. And then once it's sitting on ice, we want those flavors to stay where they were, but not get too watery. So there is some chemistry to it. Knowing the ingredients you're working with and how much you want to dilute them is, you know, that comes in mixology and bartending and messing up a little bit, but just think like a tart, tart lemon that you want to make lemonade and you squeeze three or four lemons inside and you toss some simple syrup. Well, you don't want to just taste that by itself. You've got to add some water, but not just pour from the faucet. You want to shake it up a tad. And so the activity of the water molecules into those to certain ingredients needs to be vigorously shaken or um, stirred quickly. And there is a science to that. <sighs> Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> and uh, my mind is blown again. And so it is, it's not that the temperature isn't relevant, but it's it's more than just making it cold. Yes. Wow. We need ice. We, of course, we want a cold drink, but we want our ice to cook for us. I mean, I really equate the way we make cocktails to the way we cook. I mean, we can't serve piping hot soup. You know, we've got to let it simmer. There's settings on the stove and there's maybe two or three settings when we shake. Wow. Thank you for that. So I want to shift the focus a little bit because I know you mentioned, you know, how you like to educate people and tell stories. And particularly, I mentioned at the top of the show, your collaborations with Tony Tipton Martin, and that there's quite a connection and maybe even kind of controversy is the wrong word, but concerns around the associations between the history of African-Americans with cocktail cultures and also who invented certain things um, for both African-Americans and women. And I know that's an area of interest for you and some of the storytelling you do. And I'd love, since I have your full attention, I'd love you to share some of the examples or stories that you either new ones that you found or find yourself telling over again that kind of rewrite or reframe some of the narratives that people believe ab about that history. Um, yeah, I get so passionate about this. It's, it's 
a constant research. I'm just so grateful to have Tony Tipton Martin um, on my shoulders and in my heart um, and to follow um, on researching the African-American culture. Um, we know the story, it's not the best story. And in those stories, it gets difficult for us to even dig and find names to um, a specific ingredient or, or drink or, or meal or dish. But what we do know is what was going on at that time. And so we definitely know that we were enslaved and we were um, you know, plating and, and, and serving and mixing and making punches and what have you. And so, huh, um, the mint julep, I mean, it never gets old for me because we love the mint julep. If you know anything about American thoroughbred and the very first, you know, huge, I mean, one of the best American traditions in the world um, is our Kentucky Derby. And we know that signature cocktail that's going to be served is that mint julep. And to know that that drink was served to represent America, uh, represent this region, you know, of Kentucky, Virginia's, and to know why it was the number one American sold cocktail. And it was not because of horses and uh, wild mint just grown outside. It was because of our male black bartenders who were executing this cocktail um, at least 30 years prior to the very first Kentucky Derby, executing it for constituents and presidents and visitors that would come into our country and, you know, want a cocktail. Here we are at the last country creating a whiskey of sorts. Um, we were calling it bourbon. Other countries are calling it Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey. You get to America and we're like, we're going to call it bourbon. Like that's <laughs> what we're going to do. <laughs> we're calling it bourbon. Um, but we also had, you know, a hands on some brandy um, here in the States and, and even rum from some of our bartenders that were making this mint julep with what they had outside. Sugar was such a high commodity at this time. You have sugar at your bar. You're doing it pretty big. And adding sugar and just looking outside and 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 staring at the mint. I'm actually literally looking at the mint outside of my house, looking out there and just grabbing it and saying, "What can I do with this outside of the kitchen?" Like liquid caterers and combining sugar, um, refined sugar or brown sugar with mint and tossing in. I don't even want to talk about the ounces and the proof they were using. That it was insane. Um, then. Decoring this glass with berries from outside, blackberries, blueberries, pineapples, and expressing it with the huge mint. This was done by the hands of black bartenders. And some of the best bartenders were the ones that served this to some of the forefathers of this country, some of the visitors of this country. The Prince of Wales was here and had a mint julep. He hated the South, but he went back and wrote, I have this drink that had mint and whiskey inside of it. Um, but they never talk about who created this cocktail. So there's just names of, you know, John Dabney and Kato Alexander and Tom Bullock. These are bartenders who at least had names at the bar. Um, so many more that we never knew their names that were executing these drinks like left and right. And it became the American show off cocktail. And then here comes the Kentucky Derby and they're thinking, what do we serve? I mean, the French are bringing champagne. The Italians are, you know, we've got vermouth and sparkling. And here we are showing off with our American staple, the mint julep. But the American staple cocktail was created by black bartenders. It never gets old. And 
I drink them often for that. They taste better when you know the story, but <laughs> it's so great to drink them, just not in theme of the winter time. And I mean, summertime or the Derby. It's just so great to drink them for the ancestor. Well, yeah, and they taste, they're a great flavor conversation uh, com combination. So how far back uh, would you say, like when in what you've researched, like where does the mint julep first turn up? Like back as far as slavery or when did it? Yeah, we're seeing, um, we're seeing the mint julep um, right before the Civil War. Um, John Dabney, a bartender that I've been researching for years out of Richmond, actually had, he was a caterer and had a tavern and... Slavery, uh, Civil War was actually happening. Um, there was still slavery in pockets of the country. Um, but he was a, he had his own catering company and bar tavern um, that was owned by him. Yes, the banks had some rights to it as well, but he was one of the more respected bartenders that people would go and see. When the war was happening, he had the opportunity to kind of stop doing this because we're at war, the Civil War. Um, and John Dabney had the records read that John Dabney decides to keep his tavern open because people are traveling through and he still wants to serve uh, the best cocktail. He's making so much money. He um, buys his family um, out of slavery. And when uh, emancipation happened, he was free, yet he still wanted to work at his tavern and serve, you know, more than the mint julep. But the mint julep was what John Dabney was known to do. I see. And so it sounds like you guys haven't found necessarily the person who invented it. It's more the historical record shows you certain established bartenders who were known for their serving it and because they made a good one. Yes. Um, there's only a few names out there and I'm constantly digging. Tony is with me on my side. We're constantly just looking for names. But we definitely know that there was this mint julep that was happening in a period of time. Um, we're thinking, well, Cato Alexander was doing this in 1790. Um, so we're thinking the late 1700s up until um, 1860s, 1850s and 60s, almost 100 years. And so the two, I was just thinking about the geography behind a mint julep. So the two key ingredients are bourbon and, well, three, bourbon, sugar, and mint are the key building blocks of a mint julep? Yes, that's the key. Um, we've seen the mint julep come out in multiple ways as there's more bottles coming into the country. These are port cities, New York, New Orleans, um, the Carolinas. So we're seeing more people come into the country. So we're seeing brandy hit it. We're seeing rum come in. Um, and we're seeing scotch come in. We don't see many scotch mint juleps, but at the time, it's what's uh, apple brandy and peach brandy were definitely made in the Virginias. Thomas Jefferson loved it. Um, but just whatever was brown, we weren't sipping clear spirits until the 1900s. Wow. Well, thank you. That was a, that was a great um, walk through the history of the mint julep and a perfect summer drink, too. So there <laughs> yes. we are. So I also I wanted to get your take because you um, were especially selected by Tony Tipton Martin to um, present the Julia Child Award to her in the American History Museum in front of Julia's kitchen. And I just want to take a second to ask you, what was that experience like for you? Um, I'm still freaking out. Um, <laughs> that was a dream come true. I know we can say that often, and even as children, we say that. It was a dream come true to not only be hand-selected, 
but to also uh, be in Julia's space as well and feel her energy um, and be in Washington and be at the, you know, the Food Museum, uh, a place that you can only daydream of being and really seeing your passions for food and beverage um, on the walls and seeing the story tell, the stories told and um, just seeing how much food and beverage has impacted everyone, but being in that space all together, there were a lot of tears, um, a lot, of, a lot of tears for me. <laughs> oh, that's, I know it's really, I think if you haven't been to visit J Julia's kitchen in the National Museum of American History, it is pretty amazing because there is, and obviously I'm totally biased, but there is a shrine-like quality to it. Absolutely. All right. After the break, we're going to hear Tiffany's Julia moment. If you weren't able to join us for the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara, let me tell you, it was pretty fabulous. But you can still get a sample by listening to episode 159 of Inside Julia's Kitchen. We recorded it live from the famed Santa Barbara Saturday Farmer's Market, and it features guests cooking teacher Pascal Beal and chef Jeremy Tummel of La Paloma Cafe. Our next in-person event is the 2022 Julia Child Award presentation to Grace Young at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. on October 13th. The ticketed event raises money for the Smithsonian's American Food History Project. Mark your calendars now to join us. And let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Tiffany, what's your Julia moment? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Julia, Julia has impacted my life more than I could imagine. When we think about strength, when we think about a woman in the kitchen, besides, you know, your grandma and your aunt, mm -hmm. Julia, it's about Julia. It's the confidence and the organic energy that she brings. Julia is hilarious. And Julia, seeing Julia on television when I was younger made me giggle. So entertaining to just watch someone cook that I felt like I was in her kitchen and I didn't have to do the chores. So my mm. mom and grandma made me do the chores so I could watch Julia and always <laughs> feel like I'm cooking with her. But I can remember, um, I think I was maybe in high school. Uh, she's always been, you know, coming on our local home station. Um, cable, of course, was not a thing. So this is the most entertaining thing you can watch when you're doing your homework. <laughs> And I would love to watch Julia have a sip. I know it seems pretty pretty easy for me to say that as the drinking coach and as Tiffany Perrier, but seeing a woman take a sip of sherry or wine or gin made me feel so comfortable because that's what I was used to seeing the women in my family do. So used to seeing it. And Julia 
just did it with confidence <laughs> and no shame. And that's how I was raised, to be a woman that could drink just about anything, as long as I drink it proper, meaning proper glassware, um, and, and paired uh, correctly. And then I get in my middle life, my middle career, middle of my career, and I notice I can I find a lot of uh, Julia lines. And it's really difficult to get away from go beef and gin, to go, go to beef and gin. Mm-hmm. This is... I love to pair spirits with food and beer and wine always get that front row. And so knowing and having that piece of Julia when I was there a few months ago and seeing her kitchen and hearing her voice in the background just affirmed me once again that it's okay to work with spirits and what they do to food. And so she's just kind of been thriving with me for quite some time and always made me feel okay to have a drink any time of the day. <laughs> well, I love that. No, and I think that's so true. I think that was one of the things that Julia felt strongly about was uh, was demystifying and taking away the taboos from it and, you know, o- always sort of showing a responsible model, but that it, 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 it wasn't a taboo and it could be part of like a healthy diet and lifestyle. And, you know, it helped that she was 6'3 and had a really high tolerance. But um, (laughs) (laughs) everyone was always very envious of her, her, her many appetites. So, well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This has been absolutely great. A pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for joining us as well. If you want to keep up with Tiffany, she's, not surprisingly, at The Drinking Coach on Facebook and Instagram and at Drinking Coach on Twitter. As you may know, or if you're not following us yet, you should be. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram and at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network. Today, it's Armin. Our theme song, A New French Horn, by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.